Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists, activists, and authors during this ongoing COVID pandemic. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Ramsey, uh, Zoom casting with you and Facebook living with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts on the south side of Boston. And I'm joined tonight by my very special co-host and co-producer of Shelter and Solidarity, Linda Liu. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Linda, it's good to be working with you again in uh, more ways than one here on Shelter and Solidarity. We have a very exciting show. I know we're both very invested in here um, and a very appropriate show to start for many of us, the start of the academic year. I know at UMass Boston, we just began classes just over a week ago. Some have been a little deeper in, some are just getting started across the country in higher education as well as K-12. And our conversation tonight will focus on the title, Uniting Higher Education Labor, to fight for the common good. And we will be joined by a number of activist organizers and voices from the new coalition, Higher Ed Labor United, that's Heal You or Hell You, I guess, depending on if we wanna think about healing or hell, H-E-L-U, uh, Higher Ed Labor United, that's higheredlaborunited.org. If you're a, a multitasker and wanna check that website while you're listening in on this lively conversation, um, I'm going to start just by introducing our guest, and then Linda is actually going to talk a little bit about uh, this Helio um, organization that we have both got involved with this summer. Uh, we will have uh, four, three guests and a respondent, all of which have been uh, involved in this great Helio um, coalition. We will have Brian Sachs with us. And Brian is an adjunct instructor of philosophy at Drexel University and also an adjunct instructor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers in New Brunswick, New Jersey. He also teaches philosophy at Rutgers Camden campus. He's pursuing a PhD in media studies in the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers, where he's also the vice president of the PTLFC, AAUPAFT, the Union of Adjunct Instructors. He's been an adjunct for 30 years teaching, get this, more than 350 classes across several disciplines and more than a dozen universities in that time. Brian, thank you for being here on Shelter and Solidarity. Thanks a lot for having me, Joe, I really appreciate it. Great, and as always on, on Shelter and Solidarity, on Zoom in general, right, we can only he, uh, see people when we uh, can hear them, uh, or we can only, uh, and, and that goes the reverse, if you are one of our live studio audience, please do keep your microphone uh, muted, we will, around the hour mark, bring in all of you who want to be brought in into a conversation, a dialogue with our guests and among our Shelter and Solidarity community. Thank you for that. Our next speaker will be Kalina uh, Sisanker. And please, Kalina, uh, correct my pronunciation as I've never said your name aloud before. Uh, Kalina has been an activist and a full-time professor at Gateway uh, Gateway College since 2017, and before that was a part-time lecturer at Three Rivers Community College uh, for seven years. She holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of Connecticut with a specialization in mathematical logic, and I understand she also holds a number of other union positions. I don't have in front of me. Uh, if you need to add to that, Kalina, please feel free. Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. Our last guest before we get to our respondent will be Nicola Walters, an organizer, artist, public speaker, and teacher. She is a lecturer in the Department of Politics and, Depar and, De and the Department of Sociology at Humboldt State University, serving um, on the California Faculty Association's Board of Directors as the membership and organizing chair. Nicola is also the co-chair of the Labor Outreach Committee for Higher Ed Labor United. Nicola, it is so great to have you back here on Shelter and Solidarity. 
It's my pleasure too, Joe. Thank you so much. Terrific. And later in the broadcast, we will have Nicole Brown as respondent. Nicole has been teaching sociology as a struggling and exploited adjunct, her words, for over two decades. <laughs> she currently lives in Chicago and, like many others, is tired of the status quo in academia. And otherwise, she believes H-E-L-U brings hope and inspiration and that the movement is going to create real change and bring true justice for many who have been suffering for years. Nicole, very glad to have you with us tonight. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Terrific. Now we're going to hear from our guests if in that order, if that's okay with you all, in just a moment. But uh, before we do that, um, Linda and I thought we would just lay out a brief bare bones for those who are not familiar with the HDLU coalition and just share a brief personal comment because we are far from neutral in this in this uh, discussion, I will say. We are certainly partisans in it. And just to share a, a brief personal note about why we think this show is so important and why this this coalition is so promising. Linda, take it away. Okay, great. So um, I'm just going to give a very brief intro to um, Higher Ed Labor United or HALU. Uh, higher Ed Labor United is a new nationwide coalition of higher ed unions and organizations representing uh, now over 487,000 workers across all job categories, adjunct, contingent, and tenured faculty, staff, postdocs, and graduate and undergraduate student workers. Made up of workers from small private colleges and large universities, as well as state and community colleges, HALU is united in the belief that we need a transformed higher education system that works for all and puts the common good first. After decades of hitting walls at the state level where revenues are often scarce, HALU was formed out of the collective realization that we cannot depend on upper, administrator, upper administrators and distant politicians to direct the fate of higher education. HALU is building a truly nationwide effort that's rooted in local activism and union organization, linking campuses and existing local and national unions to apply pressure at every level where key decisions are made that affect us all. From campus administrators and trustees to state legislatures and to the federal government itself. HALU has five main goals, and these are distilled from a more comprehensive collectively authored vision platform statement, which is available on its website. So the five main goals are invest in higher ed for all, free access to both two and four year public institutions, Guarantee job security, a living wage, and the right to unionize for all campus workers. Close the pay gap. Pay workers the same wage for performing the same job. Expand tenure to end the adjunct crisis. All faculty deserve job security and academic freedom. And cancel student debt. Release students and institutions from crippling debt burdens. So uh, that's a very brief intro to HALU. Uh, so HALU in a kind of nutshell. And uh, before we turn to our guests for more, uh, Joe and I just wanted to share a bit on uh, what personally inspires us about HALU. All right, so I guess I will go first. Um, so there, 
quite a few things that inspire me about Halu. Uh, so I'll just pick one. Um, there's been a lot of hopelessness and uh, disillusion and cynicism among higher ed workers uh, with respect to being able to stem, much less turn the tide of corporatization and labor exploitation. I'm very involved in my university's uh, local faculty staff union, and I've seen how hard it can be to get colleagues to, uh, to believe in our own collective power. Uh, academics tend towards individualistic solutions to their workplace problems and sometimes don't even think of themselves as workers. But the energy and collaborative spirit I've seen coming from HALU organizers really uh, gives me hope that higher ed workers do really have power and that we can really shape the future when we all come together. All right, so that's uh, one of the things that inspires me. Um, how about you, Joe? Thank you, Linda. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's many things that are inspiring about this moment, and I'm going to really kind of focus on two, I suppose. Uh, and I'll just say this. I mean, I got into higher education um, or pursued this path, perhaps uh, for, among others, two reasons, maybe naive beliefs, I suppose. Uh, one, the belief that ideas, inquiry, the pursuit of truth, the true, the beautiful, the just, can help change the world for the better, or at least reduce the ugliness and barbarity in the world in some way. But the second belief is that academia could be, or maybe was, maybe that was my community of scholars and activists relating as equals in the pursuit of say the least, threatened, blocked, contradicted by current and long-standing trends so in higher education, can be no from the privatization of the mission itself to the adjunctification and the expansion of the tier gaps between faculty members and staff and students. So I'm just inspired to see a national organization coming together that, uh, like Helu, that is addressing both, or aspiring to address both, both committed to putting the common good mission of higher education at its heart, and secondly, bringing together faculty, workers, grad and undergraduate students and workers under the banner of a commitment to equality, both in the process of organizing and in our goals for how we want to train, change the system. And uh, with, you know, with that, I'm just going to kind of turn it to our, our guests, those who everyone's been waiting to hear from, and ask them, starting with Brian, if you could, Brian, tell, uh, if you could, each of you, really, I'm going to send this question to the whole panel, and you can all uh, refer to each other if you'd like. Uh, take maybe no more than five minutes to make sure we have plenty of chance for follow-up and, and, and responses. But Brian, uh, starting with you, and then we'll go right down the line as we introduced you, could you tell us a bit about the work you do in academia, the struggles you faced in higher ed, and what you see as the needs of our moment? Uh, and within that context, why you think HELU is important um, for this moment from your perspective? Brian, Brian Thanks. I'm glad to do that, Joe, and thanks again for having me. So um, I'll, I'll just introduce myself again. I'm Brian Sachs, I'm the Vice President of the Rutgers Adjunct Unit, PTLFC, AAUP, AFT. There's 3,000 of us about working at Rutgers in a given year. We're the largest public university in the state of New Jersey and one of the largest on the East Coast. So I'll talk a little bit about the situation for adjuncts at Rutgers, Joe, and then a little bit nationally. And, and, and answer your question about um, 
Higher Ed Labor United and why um, um, we really need it in this moment. Uh, when the pandemic hit 18 months ago, adjuncts were the first employees on campus to lose work. We were cut 20% across the board due to a punitive hiring freeze that the administration announced. I mean, literally just a couple of weeks after the pandemic hit. And this was done more or less uh, prospectively, I should add. I mean, it's not even more or less. The, the, the fear decline in enrollments that were the pretext for the cuts never materialized in most departments, but we were still laid off. Making matters worse was the fact that many adjuncts had just worked tirelessly over that March spring break to convert our courses for remote delivery, and we'd done so for no additional pay. So we were in this truly odd situation of receiving emails of praise from university administrators for executing a pretty seamless transition to remote instruction at pretty much the same moment many of us were being told we wouldn't be reappointed and haven't been since. And those of us who did remain to teach in fall 2020 were, uh, a lot of us at least, were then sped up. We saw our course caps raised to levels that research shows does not serve students well. And this was done, by the way, so uh, Rutgers could save pennies. I think I calculated the savings to be less than one-tenth of one percent of Rutgers budget from laying off the 400 adjuncts that they did. It just seemed clear that saving money wasn't really the point. The point was we lacked job protections in our contract, and so we could be easily sacrificed, and we were. And uh, it just seems like this is a crisis that top administrators weren't going to let go to waste. And so that's the situation at Rutgers. Nationally, adjuncts suffered losses that were less pronounced than those at Rutgers, but in line with what other vulnerable academic workers suffered. There was a Washington Post report last fall that noted that the lowest paid workers in higher education bore the brunt of the layoffs, which was mirrored in uh, broader national trends. Back at Rutgers, uh, our staff union comrades um, in the coalition of Rutgers unions, uh, those unions which have the highest percentage of black and brown workers suffered the brunt of more than a thousand layoffs of full-time union workers. Um, that were announced. Um, there was uh, another report by the College and University Professional Association for Human Resources uh, showed in 2021, adjunct faculty experienced the greatest decrease in size by faculty group, uh, a nearly 5% reduction in workforce. And, and I would just add to that, that it can be difficult to come up with accurate numbers to represent adjunct losses, since we tend to lose work in less decisive ways than just being handed a pink slip. Um, so that might even be greater, that number. In any event, it's pretty clear that the pandemic has made our already precarious situation worse. We've been hit hard, but that's what makes the platform that Higher Ed Labor United has crafted all the more urgent. We have to push back against this crisis-fueled austerity and do it on multiple fronts. I think labor should lead the effort to reimagine the academic landscape in a way that ensures all academic workers are treated justly and in a way that ties the improvement of our working conditions to the financial and educational needs that students have. And it's really that linkage that's, if not the most unique thing, but it's certainly one of the things that makes our short-term goals that you, that Linda talked about at the top, uh, really important. We need the conversion of our insecure teaching positions to tenured ones in order to ensure dignified working conditions. We need those adjuncts who don't win those new tenure positions we're calling for to have pay equity nonetheless. That's just a matter of basic fairness. And we need our fellow academic workers 
in all categories, whether it's maintenance staff, whether it's transportation workers, dining personnel, office workers, we need everybody to be insured a living wage with no exceptions. I think this fight should be across category and for equity along lines of race and gender and class and sexuality, nationality, indigeneity, age, ability, immigration status for student and higher ed workers, all of that. This demand in our platform can't be in any way negotiable. And um, I think our vision document reflects that. So tying these labor provisions to the demand that students receive a free education uh, at either two or four year public institutions is vital. This is the vision we want. And it's the one that we have to push for, I think, together. So thanks for that opportunity. Terrific, Brian, really laid out so clearly and so clearly anchored it, it, in the experience that you've had at Rutgers. Kalina, next to you. Make sure you, you are unmuted. My apologies. There you go. I'm here. Um, yeah, so, so I'll begin by saying that a lot of what Brian mentions about the immediate situation um, in, in our universities and colleges applies to Connecticut also. Uh, you know, our board proposed to get rid of a bunch of, just a few adjuncts and educational assistants, the people who staffed, our, our, our own grad students even, during COVID for what was supposed to be um, you know, dire financial straits that we never actually encountered while hiring highly paid administrators. Uh, you know, this, this is the way that things usually go. So, you know, that experience is shared um, with all of us. But as we know, what has gone on during COVID has just sort of been a magnifying glass for the state of higher education in general, right? And the way that we've been going for a very long time. You know, I got into higher education and and specifically for me it was like public higher education was just this um you know it was uncontroversial it, it was a good it was a, always a benefit to every student and what you were doing was heroic and noble and and we are getting to the point where that is actually in question right because of the external conditions that exist around our classrooms and it makes it so that those pressures and those conditions, the consequences of taking on the challenge of higher education for our students make their way into the classroom, right? So, you know, in, in the 60s, when we were excited about providing, let's say, I, I work at a community college, providing community college or, um, or public higher education, it was possible for a student to work fewer than 100 hours, right, a month of 25, you know, hour weeks at minimum wage and pay that full tuition. That is no longer the case. And when we look at what that does to education, it's not just that our students cannot take for granted that higher education actually facilitates liberation in the long term, that in fact, it may lead to a form of indentured servitude in terms of paying back this debt, but it actually enters into the actual experience that they have in your classroom. It's not just that students are paying more for the same thing and suffering consequences down the line. It is that when a student takes on this kind of debt and this kind of risk, their they're, they're, um, engagement with education shifts because so much is at risk right? You have to be able to be vulnerable. You have to be able to, to fail. 
to, to learn. But you can't do that when you can't afford to make a misstep, right? So the very nature of higher education is being transformed by these outside conditions that we are constantly dealing with. So you cannot blame a student when they come to you and they just wanna know what, what's on the test and what do I need to do to get an A, right? Because that's survival. Those are facts, right? You would love for us all to have the luxury of being able to really explore in education and grow in certain ways. And yet that's not afforded to, to all of us, right? So, you know, there's education as a good in itself, that exploration and the, the, the consequences down the line. But it is still the fact, right? That a four-year education does increase your earning potential, right? And it is still a fact that we want to be able to make that available to everyone. And there are different paths to that, I believe strongly in going through, you know, there are many different paths through the four-year, the two-year, to the four-year, whatever it might be. But there should be, if we're focused on really truly equalizing opportunity, we wanna make all those pathways available, right? We wanna make all those pathways equally available. And the reason that, I worry about that is that we see that there are different sorts of students heading towards the two-year path as opposed to the four-year path, right? In Connecticut, um, you have students who end up in community college, for example, in our community college system, more than half of our students are black and brown, um, not so, so much at the universities. The, um, at the community college, there's you know, a much larger percentage of our students are eligible for Pell Grants, as opposed to the universities. And we want to make sure, I mean, just the fact of the matter is, while on paper you may say, well, you just wanna hit the places where the people who need the most get the most, you also need to make sure that you are not in essence providing two completely different pathways to higher education, because so often it is the case that we end up ghettoizing one or the other. Right. Um, so as a person, you know, the, the, I'm speaking here as someone who happens to be a tenured professor in um, in a community college. Um, but in the from the framework of thinking about a vision for higher ed that is truly about equalizing opportunity for all, you know, I'm hoping for this for the broader vision that Hulu kind of brings in the sense of equalizing opportunity across the board for all pathways to higher education. And in addition, um, making sure that we understand that these labor conditions are not separable from the learning conditions of our students. They absolutely frame the, the conditions, the economic conditions of our students absolutely frame the, the educational experiences of our students and what they're able to actually um, receive. So, thanks. That's wonderful, Kalina. I mean, it resonates so much. I, I'm teaching a course on the 60s right now. And one of the things I told my students is that when UMass Boston opened in the 1960s, right, I asked them, you know, how much do you think it costs to go to school? The answer is $100 a semester full time. Okay, $1,500 today with inflation, but it's actually $15,000 tuition in, in state, never mind out of state. And I mean, you make such a great point about the way that those economic conditions permeate the classroom, despite you know our whatever our enlightened pedagogy might be, 
not only the debt that hangs over their head, pressuring students to, to forego their passions, to go after a more instrumentalized path of, you know, something they think will make money, but also the work hours they're putting in. I have multiple, I have several students working 40 hours a week and more than half of that 60s class working 20 hours or more per week while taking a full course loan at a commuter institution. So anyway, I mean, I'm sure many of us on this on this call can can share similar stories, but I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's just really powerful. This isn't just about the debt down the road, but the qualitative erosion of the very thing that we're, we're that we, we say we're doing and, and claim to want to do uh, and that we really want to do. That's just wonderful. Uh, Nicola, take it from there. I know, Nicola, you've been so involved in the Helu uh, conversation, not only, you know, intellectually, uh, but but organizationally. Um, you know, uh, what would you add to, to the remarks of, of your colleagues and comrades? Thanks, Joe. You know, everything that Brian and Kalina are laying out there just resonates fully with the experience that I've had on a number of different levels. Uh, in the CSU, kind of thinking about that historical transition, you know, thinking about how things were in the 1970s to the present, we've seen in the California State University system, as our student population has gotten darker, the funding has gotten lighter. And that's the very real social justice implications that we're seeing on our campuses, that this isn't just about you know, students having to pay more for tuition, it's that we're making purposeful changes to the way that we think about students and preventing a very specific group of folks from getting access to higher education, among a number of other issues that we're dealing with across the university system. But just to sort of frame a little bit of how I come into this conversation, yes, I have been really invo involved with Hulu from the beginning of things, but as a teacher myself, I, before COVID, was a community college associate professor in Northern California. My job dried up when COVID hit. Um, I am a, a lecturer at Humboldt State University. I have been uh, a lecturer and a community college professor in Humboldt County for a number of years. Um, so I, and I also am a graduate from the California State University system myself. So I've seen the university, uh, which I now work as a union organizer as a part of the California Faculty Association. You know, I've seen it from a lot of different vantage points. <laughs> I've seen education in California from a lot of different vantage points. I've been a student, community college worker, also a lecturer, and a, and a faculty organizer across all 23 of our campuses. So, you know, thinking about those kinds of perspectives, it really, I just wanted to just kind of walk you through, you know, why I started to see this as, a, as an issue to be involved with. Um, it was in 2015 that I started as a graduate student and I began working on faculty issues because I lived in a small community and it was just immediately apparent that there were big issues on our campus that permeated into our community. We were struggling with housing and affordable housing. As a graduate student, two out of 10 students that I started the program with began grad school without housing. One of the students showed up to orientation with a car filled with things from the other side of the state a you know, student of color coming to a rural white community came from the other side of the state in California with nowhere to live and ended up living with me until they could find a place to live more permanently. The other student was working as a lecturer on our campus and was homeless. I couldn't even imagine thinking about being a teacher, a starting grad student, a new lecturer on a campus and living out of your car. 
And the thought of trying to conduct classes and house yourself was just unconscionable to me. Then I realized that it wasn't just the graduate program where students were struggling, but across our campus, we had 1,200 students on a small campus of 8,000 who were experiencing housing insecurity. And then I found out that faculty across my campus were working multiple jobs on multiple campuses and being paid poverty wages. I graduated and then became one of those faculty members. Since I lived in a small rural community where opportunities were very limited, getting a job with the largest employer in the area as a lecturer, as a community college professor, as a teacher was a dream come true. And I started working at the community college simultaneously, driving two hours uh, across Humboldt to a rural area where I would teach on the Hoopa Reservation. So I taught a lot of students that were struggling to navigate access to higher education from the onset. And even at Humboldt State, it's a minority serving institution. The bulk of our students are coming from LA, Southern California areas. And so I was teaching on three campuses simultaneously, up on, in Hoopa, in Arcata, California, and Eureka, supplementing, uh, supplementing my income with gig work. I was building websites in my free time, doing content editing, and also working as a studio assistant for a local artist. And I did all of these things without qualifying for healthcare. And when I joined the California Faculty Association, I realized that even though I was barely making it by, I wasn't alone. And I discovered that through my membership and recruitment work where I was talking with colleagues, not just on my campus, but across the state, the bulk of us were lecturers. We were underpaid, unsupported, financially insecure, and denied the dignity of our profession. And the, the lecturers in my position were more likely to be women, more likely to be people of color, and they weren't just young folks starting their careers. They were folks who had been working for 10, 15, 20, 25 plus years as lecturers, waiting every year or every semester to see if they were going to be employed or shown the door without barely any acknowledgement of their commitment to their campuses, their students, and their communities. And in the California State University system, this story is across every campus. We have 23 campuses, 29,000 faculty members. We are a large institution. And as Brian was illustrating for us, when COVID hit, it just took an issue that was already in crisis and just exacerbated it. When I did a survey of faculty on our campus, I found that 20% of our faculty, as soon as COVID uh, <laughs> hit and they immediately started losing their jobs, not having classes for the next semester, that 20% of them lost healthcare or would lose it in a semester during a global pandemic. And so we started a push pause campaign to try to desperately hold the line on faculty jobs because all of these things were just hypothetical, you know, looking at the future, but not taking into consideration that we were also seeing major amounts of financial stimulus shoring up any kind of financial losses that our university system was experiencing and not even taking into consideration that the CSU was sitting on billions in surplus. So we weren't recognizing the very real fiscal realities. It was, a it was a convenient opportunity to cut workers and to ask for more. So, you know, I have been looking at those kinds of experiences and stories for the last few years. And through sharing these kinds of stories, that's where Higher Ed Labor United started to take shape. We're all connected in our struggles. Our experiences may vary, but our stories echo across education. We are in crisis. And it's going to take all of us working together to transform higher education, not just for teachers, but for our students and for our communities. I think it is incredibly important that we emphasize here that these types of considerations, as Kalina was also uh, emphasizing, are 
budgetary considerations. The way that we think about our work, our labor is adequate, you know, is ultimately tied to how we think about the dollars that our institutions receive. They make decisions where they prioritize how they think about their workers and how they think about students. And so it's really been our push with Higher Ed Labor United to say, now is the time to talk about this. Now is the time to write in these protections and provisions for labor to think about true access to education in two and four year institutions, and to also consider what it really looks like to have fair wages and a real stable job that's so fundamental for us to really do the work that we're united in the fight to do. Oh, Nicola, that's just so powerful. I almost teared up over here listening to those stories, both the stories of colleagues and, and students alike. Uh, you conjure it so powerfully, and you and you close with a with a really, I think, poignant, crucial point, which is that budgets are you know arguments, right? The budgets that we're given are they're not just objective things set in the sky or whatever, right? They're 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 made they have political agendas. Priorities are set in those budgets, and it's about damn time that we go after those budgets. Uh, you know, a lot of us have been dealing with them on our campuses at the state level, but to really target them on the federal level as well is so crucial. And I think a perfect transition to our next question, and Linda's going to ask that, I think maybe starting back at the, uh, we'll go right through the lineup again. Uh, Linda, take it away. Okay, so um, my question to all three of you is, uh, what is Hilo doing right now and what would you say are its key tactics and strategies um, and how can people relate to uh, HALO's activities? So, um, Brian? Sure, thanks Linda. Um, I'll just give a shorter answer. I mean, I guess in, in terms of what we are and should be doing, I'd say we should first be thinking about like what we're up against uh, as we've already started to touch on here. I think what we're facing is a philosophy of structural exploitation. And so to me, the most important thing we need to be doing as unions and union leaderships is committing to member community and public education around our true status at the university. You know, despite how we are seen uh, as adjuncts and referred to by students at most universities, we are not professors. We're unjustly exploited, radically contingent gig workers. That's who we are. And the people who are in charge, you know, not only don't care to do enough about it, the ideologies that they're enthralled to uh, incentivize them to find ways to even deepen our exploitation, to get more out of us. But making good arguments to them isn't going to be, you know, what we, you know, isn't the tactic we need. We need to amass power. And, and that comes from getting our respective memberships behind agenda for real change. And, you know, listening to, to Kalina's powerful remarks, I was reminded of, of, of something I tried to say at, a, at, a, you know, at an earlier um, session like this, uh, that, you know, to try and illustrate the attitude that we're fighting inside the university. It, I'd said that it seems to me that uh, the administration of Rutgers and, and administrations elsewhere have made a kind of bet that they can cut resources for departments and deny adjuncts basic support for their jobs while not having that disinvestment be made visible to the students we teach. Kalina's right, of course, our uh, working conditions, our students' learning conditions, but I think these administrations have bet that the professionalism adjunct show and our long established willingness to overperform uh, you know, and give students everything they need will carry the day, you know, it'll continue. They, so they try to you know, ramp up 
the just-in-time labor delivery model to even greater extremes, denying adjuncts uh, right up until the time classes start, in a lot of cases, contracts. And sometimes, you know, even classes went after classes have begun. You know, they figure that um, even though we don't have we don't have uh, um, you know, offices to meet students, um, even though um, you know we uh, don't get paid for the course conversion work I referred to before, uh, even though they raise our course caps, we'll just manage. And you know, the, the point I made was that you know it's a pretty good bet. We do get the job done. We do, for the most part, right? In an academic world where seventy-five percent of all instruction is done by folks off the tenure track and 50% is done by those radically contingent adjuncts, it's a pretty good bet. But, but the point that has to be made is that we are at the breaking point. We're bending under the weight of the exploitation that we're subject to uh, as a condition of our existence at the university. It manifests in countless ways. And I think what we need to do, Linda, uh, in addition to all the other things we're doing in the short and medium terms legislatively, is to make this case to our members and to our community stakeholders that all the manifestations of exploitation that we face are linked. They're linked to an exploitative management philosophy. That's what we have to overcome. Uh, you know, the university is, it shouldn't be run like a passenger airline which probably also shouldn't be run that way, you know, where the governing philosophy is to optimize every space and maximize forms of efficiency without taking into consideration human well-being. You can't run a university that way. And Kalina said it beautifully. You can't, it ought to be a place where students can, you know, examine ideas and speculate idly without fear of, you know, the loss of their livelihood. So, um, not exactly what you asked, but uh, you know, it's what we put, what, what it puts me in mind. Yeah, I, I, I think that's key, um, just to make the case to as many people as possible that um, that our conditions are, are linked to exploitative uh, management philosophy, um, and that we are actually um, we are actually obeying that and that uh, sabotages ourselves. So, um, so thank you for that. Um, now, let's see, Kalina. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess I'll just uh, kind of continue on with, with, with what Brian's saying in just the sense that um, how deeply corrosive, right? Um, this trend is, right? So we see, even at this moment, the folks who are most exposed on our campuses, let's say in terms of COVID, having to teach on campus and so on, are likely to be, the folks who don't have the choices, are likely to be the people for whom we do not provide health insurance, right? And, you know, it, it is just, it's so appalling <laughs> and, and, and so fundamentally just, wrong but there it is at the base of our institutions because it is these very same people who are the core instructional staff of our entire institution the word adjunct doesn't it shouldn't apply right an adjunct is to say that it is just some you know addition to the core but our adjuncts are the core instructional staff right and if you 
just think about what that means. It's not a problem for someone else. It's not the case that if you have a full-time job or if you're a student or if you're a community member even, that this is somebody else's problem. It's the adjunct's problem, right? It's their working conditions. It is the case that we are all facing a, a business model, let's say, where we're going to suck everything <laughs> that is possible out of anyone we can get. And yes, absolutely, our part-timers um, do get the job done, right? And, and that is the problem, that there isn't, an, there isn't something wrong with that, with that adjunct instruction, that they can count on uncompensated labor and people to whom they do not make commitments providing the, the actual core of, of what is being provided. Um, so, you know, our students now who are bearing more costs than, than they ever did um, for what we are saying is an education, you know, the, the, the investment is often least in that classroom, least in that educational experience, right? Um, this affects all of us, right? This affects all of us. And I think one of the key things that we have to do is explain to just the average person on the street just absolutely how corrosive this is to us as a culture, right? As as people who 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 value, right, a well-working society, and and you know, uncontroversially, education is it's a good, but we have to deliver it in a way that we are not undermining the clear benefits of this sort of thing. Maybe I'll jump in, Linda, and speak about what Hila was working on. I feel like you're going to kick it to me in a second, anyway. <laughs> um, so with with Higher Ed Labor United right now, I I've been really inspired by working with this group because the organization that has happened in a relatively short period of time has been astounding. So just to let everyone know, I mean, we had a summit that happened July 7th and 9th, and that was bringing people together to come in, you know, to come in union to in conversation around a, and create a vision platform that we ended up uh, endorsing and supporting there at the summit itself. And then following this summit, we really had this opportunity to then think, okay, so what are our next steps to make a difference? Like we know that these problems are there and through these kinds of conversations, we're making them more visible so that we're not just struggling in our silos, but we're unified in the work that we're doing. And uh, Kalina has has added that to the chat so people can take a look at it. So this really forward thinking uh, type document emerged as really a guide for how we wanted to operate as an organization. And those organizational pieces that started to develop took form in a legislative team, uh, a legislative committee, a labor outreach committee, which I'm the co-chair of, and then a collective action committee. And I know that we have some of those other committee members here as participants in our group, uh, Trent McDonald, and also looking at Marisa Chappelle. So, you know, these kinds of, the type of work that our colleagues, oh, and Joe Ramsey, shoot, you know, you're also a co-chair of collective action. So, you know, thinking about how we're, uh, how we've been looking at trying to make moves on this, take uh, this vision platform, the key points that were presented by Linda at the beginning of this conversation, and then 
put energy into actually seeing a transformation on a national level, we've been tackling it from those different vantage points or from those different types of lenses, looking at how we can influence things legislatively, trying to actually get our language into the bills that are looking at funding higher education, expanding it to include four-year institutions, that there need to be labor provisions included in that as well, if we're going to be seeing any kind of money coming to higher education, and ultimately looking at that type of pay parity, uh, the adjunct crisis that we have been experiencing, and try to resolve the struggles that our colleagues are shouldering, even though they continue to do the work that Kalina is painting that picture for us. You know, it's like we're continuing to serve our students because that's what we're there to do, but we need to also realize that, like, this work needs to be paid. It's not being compensated justly, and we're shouldering that exploitation. Um, you know, that structural exploitation without really pushing back on it. So we've been doing tons of work uh, through connecting with our senators, elected officials to put this into the national focus so that this can't be something that's like, oh, well, you still were able to make things work during COVID, we're good to go, but rather trying to change the national conversation so that there is this, I, this notion that we are actually experiencing a crisis. It's not something that just happened during COVID, but something that we've been experiencing and shouldering and need to see changes on right now. If we're at the breaking point, the urgency is there. And we're saying that that urgency is, you know, that, that the timing for this is now, and we need to see those changes now if we see, if we want higher education to persist. Um, but then ultimately, you know, a lot of our organizing efforts can also be found on our website. If you go to higheredlaborunited.org, you'll see that we have on the front page of our website, a pledge card where you can get involved. Uh, we are encouraging people who are unionized and non-unionized to sign on to be involved with this movement. Uh, you know, All categories of workers signing on to figure out how you can use the energies that you have to help to support this transformation. And we also have a tool kit you know we are always working on different schedules some of us are have been back on campus for weeks now others have not um, but if you go to our uh, our top toolbar and you see uh, the fall 2021 toolkit it helps to sort of get the conversation going on your campus about what you could be doing to help us with this national work so you know the we have the links for the platform and the pledge there potential actions a cheat sheet on how to organize and the list is exhaustive you know we've really have a lot of resources there that's all a testament to the hard work of this group and the collaboration across these committees to make this something that is not just you know something that we talk about and prescribe some of the solutions that we see but are making real efforts to change and transform higher education uh, in you know a very real fashion that's terrific, Nicola. And I think, uh, I mean, we're going to actually share a slide a little bit later and at the end of the show, perhaps as well, uh, with numbers people can call to put pressure on key senators, legislators right now in your state and beyond to make sure that this language, which we've been told has been picked up by some important folks, the Sanders office and others, and really amplify that call and, and get this, um, get some of these labor provisions in these federal bills. Uh, where they cannot be ignored uh, by these institutions in the way that they might otherwise be. Uh, Nicola, I think, and, and Kalina as well, uh, Brian, really you all touched on, I think, a great transition to our third question, which I'm going to put to you right now. And then I do want to say to our whole audience, uh, 
after we after this round of question and then some remarks from uh, from Nicole Braun, we're going to open things up to you. So please, um, as I already indicated in the chat box, if you do have a question uh, that you'd like to ask directly or have us relay for you, please indicate that in the chat box if you want to put some caps there so we don't miss your question with all the comments in the chat box. My question uh, to the panel, one more question before we bring in Nicole, um, is what do you see are some of the challenges and obstacles that, that HELU faces? Uh, and I think those could be understood as external as well as internal challenges in the short and the long term. Uh, and, and, and what are some of the, the strategies that we are using and can use to overcome them? You know, it's a big, you know, between the internal and the external challenges, that's, that's, that's a big thing. But one I wanted to flag, which has come up, I think, in at least two, if not all three of your remarks, which is this contradiction between an adjunct faculty member, contingent faculty members being highly exploited, oppressed, uh, vulnerable, but still getting the job done. And as Brian indicated, the way in which a kind of code of professionalism, right, can actually function, among other things, to kind of veil the labor conditions and, in fact, create a barrier of alienation between ourselves and our students, even paradoxically at the moment, as Kalina and others have under, underscored, right, uh, where when our conditions, the conditions of contingent and, and, and precarious adjunct faculty may, in fact, be more and more similar to the, and undeniable as just as the conditions facing our students are undeniably in affecting their academic performance. So, I mean, I'm not saying you all need to speak to this, but it seems to be something that's coming up organically in your comments. And I think many of us fa face, which is how do we ourselves individually, but also it, how do we uh, help our colleagues, our comrades in the union, not in the union, um, in non-unionized workplaces and faculty associations to kind of confront and, and try to get beyond that barrier, um, which is not to say chucking professionalism out the door completely, but how do, we, how do we deal with this contradiction, which in fact cuts us off from students who really need to be our allies in this and our comrades in this, if we're gonna make any headway, at least I view, that's the students are the biggest number of people in higher ed by far. Um, so that's one obstacle I see, which I'll highlight. I'm not gonna, I don't wanna pen you all in though, but maybe going all the way back to Brian again, uh, if you'd like to speak to that obstacle, Brian, or any other challenges, internal or external, to this this higher ed labor united coalition and the broader movement that you see facing us that maybe needs to be on people's radar more than it might be right now. Thank you. I'll just say one thing. I want to get to uh, let let others talk, and um, just I'll just remark on the the disparity just even within unions and within um, the different job categories with respect to resources. Um, you know, when you're um, when you're an adjunct, the question of resources and the question of autonomy are always present for you when you're working in coalition with uh, full-time faculty or tenured faculty, right? I mean, just again, at our university, there's 3,000 or so adjuncts. There's six to 7,000 members in the full-time faculty and grad chapter. And if you looked at the difference in our budgets and how much money we have to spend in a year, our unions, it's not two to one. Put it that way, you know, it's not five to one or ten to one either, right? There's a great resource disparity, and that disparity plays itself out in terms of, you know, the number of staff that can be hired, the number of initiatives that can be supported at any one time. We adjuncts are constantly stressed and strained in terms of resources to meet all of the demands of our members and to redress the problems that we've already raised here. At Rutgers, we're lucky to have uh, a sister faculty union, full-time faculty and grad union that understands this disparity, right? 
and understands the need for our union to remain autonomous and have our own voice. Having said that, it remains a challenge in coalitional spaces. It simply does, right? The resource disparity is something which needs to be figured out so that, again, um, the exploited adjuncts, the less voiced uh, workers at the university can be on a footing as equal as their more resourced partners who are all you know, working with them for, you know, for the vision we all want to realize. Thanks so much, Brian. Kalina? Sure. I mean, in terms of challenges, like United Coordinated Action is just always hard, right? Um, it, I think it was Brian who said, this is not something that you reason people out of. This is a matter of power. There are other pressures and forces that make it so that our colleges and universities feel the need to, to move towards greater adjunctification, contingency, deprofessionalization, right? There are actual pressures that they are responding to, and it is only counter pressure that can get us elsewhere. So create a situation where it has to be otherwise. So to coordinate the kind of um, action and, and, and unity that is necessary for us all to all rise together. It's just always tough, um, but I'm, I'm loving that we are on the path, you know, to, to doing that. Um, the other thing I think is just the, the um, perception that money is enough. You know, many of us think that you, if we just had the resources, because a lot of this is rooted in the fact that, you know, um, you know, there's state underfunding. There's so many aspects in which we are not supported the way that we used to, and those costs are being shifted onto students and, and others. And, you know, that just putting money back in, but I think our, our culture has shifted in a way that we don't necessarily value <laughs> um, providing these services in the same way. And I, I think many of us can reflect on the ways that our institutions have used COVID relief funds um, just to see how, you know, whether or not that moved us in the great in the path, uh, in a direction of uh, greater justice um, or not. And um, I think this is kind of what you were hinting at, Joe, and I think it's always a struggle, you know. Um, for those of us in education, sort of stand, the ones the ones who are standing at the front of the class certainly don't always think of ourselves as as workers, right? Um, there's no way to pay a, a, a wage for the kind of care that you have to exercise when you are you've been entrusted with a group of students who need you to do what it takes to get them through that semester to educate them adequately. It's a it's a real um, responsibility that you take on. So the struggle of figuring out how it can be that you can sort of, you know, push back against the fact that some of us are doing that in a way that if you actually meet the needs of students, it's necessarily exploitation while other, others of us are not. Um, while doing, you know, you should not take that on <laughs> if you're not willing to do that. It's a hard kind of balance um, to row. And the fact is, no matter what, we are all so privileged to be in that position at all, right? Um, and I think we need to, I would suggest that we, we one, think of ourselves as, as cultivating the conditions of work that our students are going to enter into, right? That's one. And two, understanding that maybe part of it is simply precisely what we were talking about before, which is educating our students um, about how to, how to shift things in the direction that benefits all of us together, right? Um, but I think to, for me, those are like the three greatest, I don't know how to deal with them. <laughs> Yeah, the real challenges 
right? Real challenges. I mean, my, my own experience is that, uh, you know, is that when I do let students in to the, the story of the university, you know, how the sausage is made behind the curtain, whatever you want. Overwhelmingly, at least at a place like UMass Boston, the experience is positive. You know, I know, I mean, I know Joe Barry and, and Helena Worthen in their recent book, uh, their new book, Power Despite Precarity, use the analogy to coming out of the closet, right? You know, from the, the kind of gay liberation movement, you know, that it can feel that way, right? When to like come out as an adjunct or a contingent or whatever. Um, and that's challenging, but I mean, just for all those who may be listening or watching and, and considering this, I do feel like my own experience, I mean, I know everyone's situation can be different in different ways, um, is just been, it's been really uh, inspiring, right, to hear students identify with that struggle, and, and it actually creates a basis for solidarity that, that includes the course content, in, at least in the fields I teach, but also, you know, transcends it and, and, and leads the basis of, of, of some, you know, some some kind of comradeship that goes beyond the classroom. And I, I don't know, I feel like we, we definitely need more of that. Uh, we definitely need more of that. Uh, so thank you all for these uh, powerful comments. We're gonna bring in Nicole Braun right now uh, as a respondent who has some questions to build on and maybe comments to build on what has already been said. And then we're gonna open it up to, we're gonna actually run a, a short little video and slide to reinforce to everyone on this uh, live conversation and everyone watching on Facebook and everyone watching it later, some very concrete things you can do right now and in the next week and things you can share with your union, your faculty association, your colleagues, um, your, your community to help amplify this HELU call right now. There is money, the, the future of, of, of billions of dollars is being decided, trillions even decided as we speak and we need to have our voice in that conversation as well as on our campuses. So please um, you know, take notes and take action coming out of this conversation. But before that, we have Nicole Braun. And Nicole, so glad to bring you into the conversation on Shelter and Solidarity once more. Well, thank you so much. So I have, speaking of notes, I have about 5,000 pages so far. And I've also put together, um, like I said earlier, I just a lot of questions that adjuncts specifically have about the movement and, you know, to get more clarity because there is some, you know, some distrust, I, I would say, uh, to put it mildly. But the one thing Joe said at the very beginning that I want to emphasize is that when I went to college and then graduate school, I, I thought I was going to be surrounded by people and we were going to be talking about ideas and making social change. And I assume, and this was a very long time ago that I would move you know, from sort of being a poor single mother into a tenure track position. And you know, that was sort of the dream. And the dream is so gone. Um, the dream is so gone. But one of the things that I notice is that a lot of people, and especially students who are coming from more working class or poor backgrounds, aren't aware of the adjunct or contingent situation at all. So, you know, we start talking about, oh, there's an adjunct who's homeless, or there's an ad or, you know, contingent worker who's in you know, in line to get food stamps, or, you know, they're struggling. It's hard sometimes for people in a larger society to have, you know, it's like a disconnect that they've been socialized so deeply to think, oh, professor, you know, like upper middle class. So when I'm thinking about that, and then I'm thinking about the things that we've talked about, you know, the, the truth is, is that, you know, we're in a huge economic crisis in this country. I did a research project about a year ago, and it looked at all the students across the country who are either food insecure and or housing insecure. And we know a lot of adjuncts are as well. So 
I, I guess I'm sort of wondering what we can do um, to sort of address the situation that um, so many people are in. It's hard, it's hard to even focus on organizing if you're wondering where you're going to, you know, live, um, for one thing. And it's also, you know, really, there, and this is sort of like off the top or off that subject, but there's a lot of um, concern and tension between full-time tenure-track faculty and contingent workers, understandably, because a lot of times full-time faculty have a lot of power over adjuncts and contingents to, to, to hire them, to write evaluations. Um, the other day I was just talking to uh, you know, a, 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 a colleague that I work with in California. I teach at the college in California and she's She's an adjunct and she's really uh, you know, out about talking about the contingent issue with the full-time faculty. And we're in the same unit with the full-time faculty, but the full-time faculty, she said, were sort of like laughing at her. They're not even taking the issue seriously. Like they see, oh, like I'm going on sabbatical. So I'm just going to take this contingent person in, but oh, now my class got cut. So now I'm gonna go back and take this person's um, class. And so I guess I'm wondering how can we build like a community of solidarity or a culture of solidarity when you know academia is such a competitive individualistic culture overall i mean from my personal experience so anyway i just threw that out i have five million more questions but if anybody wants to respond to that that would be awesome thanks thanks nicole that's that's really powerful Let, let's kick that back to the panel and then if folks would like to respond to that or anything as well as other things that have been said between each other let's do that and then we'll, we'll start to bring in the the q a uh, thank you, Nicole. Uh, Brian, do you want to speak to that? So Nicola, Nicola, Nicola just, a chance if she wants to go. Just unmuted. Go ahead, Nicola. Sure. I wasn't sure if I need to raise my hand or jump in, you know, <laughs> but, you know, we're all kind of in the same boat collaborating in this conversation. So I don't feel, you know, any kind of, you know, impact if other people want to kind of like pick up and help out in the spaces where I'm where I go. Um, but I just, you know, I think that one of the big struggles kind of relating back to the question that really frames Nicole's contribution is that, you know, we are doing something where we're organizing in a multifaceted system with a that's deeply fractured. And so in my union, um, in with the California Faculty Association, we're a wall-to-wall -wall union. So we represent librarians, lecturers, coaches, counselors, faculty across the board. And that means that we really don't see this kind of uh, division of union resources, but we still have the same kinds of conversations about how we unify in our struggles to work on issues that are maybe affecting us in different ways. And so I think that, you know, while we, you know, that conversation about having some mistrust and some concern when there are people who do benefit from a two tiered system, it's not any different than what we're dealing with when we look at society at large and we start analyzing privilege and some of the experiences that we have on a broader level. Those, that line is kind of like a false space, you know, it's like really, um, when we are organizing with CFA, we're talking all the time about how there are specific issues that connect us um, as parents, you know, and how we might be approaching a conversation about parent relief during COVID is a unifying issue for us, regardless of what your position is. You know, or we're looking at social justice kind of relationships in, re in regard to the police or immigration concerns or anti-Asian hate, 
you know, these kinds of things are what bind us together. And I really feel like the distinction of you're a tenured faculty member, you're a lecturer, and that's where the conversation stops really is a little bit too narrow for us to be thinking about how, as Brian so appropriately identified, this structural exploitation that in our department meetings, in our conversations, no one is secured from. Everyone relates to it differently, but we're all in the same boat together. And I can't stress enough how, you know, that experience for me of being in my department meetings with faculty this past year and being on the brink of breaking down as I talk to my colleagues about the stress that I'm experiencing, overworked, underpaid, job insecure, et cetera. You know, I am reaching out to a largely tenured faculty body in my department, but we're relating to one another in how we see the needs of us as teachers unifying around issues that we want to see transition and change on. So perhaps the urgency isn't the same. I'm not going to pretend that my colleague who's making four times my salary, six times my salary, has the same kind of financial insecurity issues that I have. But if we stop the conversation at your tenured and 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 I'm adjunct, and we don't realize that we're all bounded in a deeply fractured and problematic system that needs to transform, we're not going to get there. And that's why Hulu is not just, you know, I saw some comments from the chat, you know, thinking about blue collar, pink collar workers. I mean, we're also incorporating healthcare workers that make up a large part of our campus communities across this country. We're also talking about social workers, childcare, a lot of people who are involved with a variety of different disciplines that all intersect in higher education. And that's why it's not just, oh, I'm this discipline and this is what an educator looks like. We are multifaceted. We look like a lot of different people. We are connected in a variety of different ways. And we ultimately are pushing for something that's not gonna just address our economic considerations, but pave the way for us to have a system that is social justice focused and realizes the very lived conditions that our colleagues around us are experiencing. And that's what I really want to emphasize as Hilo, uh, as Hilo's kind of guiding force. This isn't about just economic adjunct, you know, tenured, this and that, like this vision is about a system that really supports each and every one of us, grad workers, postdoc, you know, staff, undergraduate students, where it's, it's a, one fraction of the conversation lies in adjunct tenured faculty, but that's not the whole picture. Is it okay if I say one more thing? Sorry. I, um, I, I, that's wonderful what you just said. I guess I'm, I'm wondering like how to address the rage uh, for year after years of sort of being like a contingent worker. How do you, how do we um, talk about that in a way that is um, productive and also, I mean, what is what is your perspective on a national strike? I mean, do you think that everybody walking out would be a, a good idea? So anyway, I'm finished. Those are my questions. I have I have lots more, but I will be finished with that. Thank you, Nicole. As as we were saying before the show, I, I would love us to actually talk about following up with some of those questions and doing a follow up show on some of these important issues as you know part of working through these in building this struggle. Um, you know, really value your contribution. Uh, Brian or Kalina, would you like to speak to um, some of the issues that, that Nicole is raising before we, we move towards a broader discussion with all of our live participants? I mean, I wouldn't mind speaking to just 
just a small portion of it. And it is the, the sort of the distrust. And I think, did you use the word rage, Nicole? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that. And it's, it's so difficult when you have folks in close proximity with each other and one group is significantly more privileged than the other, right? Um, but I think the thing that we have to remember is that we are all collectively suffering from the same conditions and the source of the problem is not our comparative deprivation or privilege. It is a structural issue that starts well beyond us. So the fact that we are even smashed in together in this way, the fact that my contract may obligate me to take someone else's um, you know, position away from them in that semester and at the very last minute, knowing that they have nothing else and there's, there's nothing for me to do, right? I mean, I think when you, when you put people in harsh conditions and, and that is where we are, right? Higher ed has been under attack for decades now. We don't have the level, even those of us relatively privileged within this space are still not, it, no, it's not the level of sort of um, esteem that it used to have. There's not that level of security, you know, full-timers, but losing their jobs like crazy, right? Right as COVID hit also, right? So we are in such close proximity and we also have to understand that we are as secure as our most exploited worker because I am easily replaceable by a couple of much cheaper adjuncts, right? We're in this together. Um, and so I, I hope that we keep that focus of understanding that we're gonna have to rely on each other to attack the structural problem. That is not that, that sort of interpersonal one where we are stepping on each other's toes because that's just the way we've been mashed together. I, and I hope that's, yeah. Brian, would you like to, to offer a comment? I, I can't really improve on what Nicole and Kalina said. They, they, they said that better than I would. Powerful comments. I mean, I'll just add one brief thing and then I think we can go. Seren has a, a great video, uh, I think, queued up for us to, to, to help us all take an immediate step right now in addition to this just plunging in and processing this conversation. And, and it's just one thing is that in addition to being in the same boat in terms of the university, and we have heard about tenured faculty at institutions being laid off during this COVID pandemic as well. Uh, but we're also in the same boat in terms of like global warming and creeping fascism, right? And militarism. And I feel like, I mean, maybe this is too pie in the sky, but to the extent that as speakers on this panel have made clear, you know, that, that, that the only way in which a university can ever potentially live up to which, you know, this fantasy of being a progressive bastion and anti, you know, an anti-fascist bulwark against the creeping reaction in this country and, and, and the threats to the planet and, and actually activate knowledge for social change is if we take seriously the, the working learning conditions, you know, identity and dialectic there, right? And it's like, and I'd like to think that some tenure track folks, even if they don't see their economic interest is identical with their adjunct faculties, and there undoubtedly are some tensions, maybe if they actually are at least the social justice minded faculty, you would think, right, could see that, you know, if they want the students to actually have a chance to learn this stuff, they need to work to reduce class size, right, and, and so forth. And they, they, want, they want students to have a chance to develop a relationship with a faculty member so that they can actually fulfill their dreams of changing the world. The faculty member needs to be there next semester. So, I mean, that's one of the things about Hilu anyway, and I encourage everyone to read that platform because it's not only focused 
on the immediate demands, the job security, and this crucial stuff we're talking about a lot today. But it's also about the need to commit to an anti-racist university, you know, uh, you know, to decolonization, to to fighting climate change. And I think we could probably build, you know, on that as our coalition develops other community campus links. Here I'm maybe putting on my Helu cap for a second, so pardon me going on. I'm going to shut up. But I do think uh, that to me is another way, Nicole, to go back to your question, like how can we build solidarity despite the rage? Well, we need to maybe figure focus on some of those other broader threats we face in not only on but beyond the university. Uh, and in that sense, we are we should be on the same side with even a lot of our perhaps somewhat diluted, privilege blinded faculty. And we need to we need to work with them to overcome. We need to help teach them to overcome their own alienation because they can't win without us because we're the majority. Their power really can't be much beyond moral persuasion without the real numbers on the campus, just as we need our students to really magnify our power, I would argue. All right, enough for me. Um, we have some great questions in the queue that are gonna be coming up. We got Juliana, Brett, Benjamin, Ben Stork, Trent McDonald and others, but first. shall run there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one but the union makes us strong there are people to call right now senators in washington that that need to hear from us and as well as the gatekeepers in the Democratic Party where there is some some interest in this in moving some of this language. Um, I'd like to actually welcome our first question uh, comment really maybe actually following up on that video Trent McDonald, who's been a really core member of the Helu coalition on the organizational side on the legislative side on the really on the just just the, the nuts and bolts as well as strategy side. Trent, I wondered if I could welcome you into the conversation to just offer a few thoughts whether it's a question or not to just kind of hammer home maybe some of what this, the strategic logic of Helu is right now. Uh, you talk about a vertical and a horizontal strategy. I wonder if you could let our listeners and viewers in on that uh, and reemphasize that before we go to perhaps after that, Brett and uh, Juliana and then Brett Benjamin. Trent? Do we still have Trent with us? He's there. He's there. All right, Trent, make sure you're unmuted. Yes, yeah, sorry, there was a mechanical hang-up. I couldn't unmute because of the post good to, see, good to see you, Trent. We've been on the phone a lot, but I didn't know what you looked like. So there you are. Welcome. Really? I've never seen you? All right. Well, hello, everyone. Greetings from St. Louis. I'm um, an English PhD candidate at Washington University in St. Louis. I was with the WashU Undergrad and Grad Workers Union, or WUGWU. And I have been, uh, yeah, as, as Joe very kindly said, and uh, uh, working with uh, Hilo over the past few months, and then just wanted to give Praise and shout out to Kalina and uh, Brian and Linda and, Nicola and Marisa. I think I saw Becky earlier um, and regrets to anyone else I didn't say for all the hard work that everybody else has been putting in. That's why I put the work in too. But uh, the short of it, I throw some links in the chat, um, is that in America, our labor movement is, is uniquely divided. When we talk about a labor movement, it's, it's quite often wrong, right? In fact, it's several. Um, and so 
we worked, and this is in the final link, to map out all the various uh, unions that exist across the different occupations on campus and quickly, you know, see it's like, oh, not only do we not have a national union, we have uh, 13 more, depending on how you cut it, uh, and that we don't often talk across our campuses, right? We don't, we don't usually talk across states or national unions that much. And so while we have like small relationships, we don't have large ones, that because we, we do not lack, because we lack coordinating capacity, that therefore our labor standards are constantly being eroded because we're getting pit against ourselves. That's not to say the public sector where the vast majority of, of higher ed is, is identical to the private sector when it comes to profit margins. There are significant differences, but nevertheless that the corporate managerial strategy that's only been um, drastically increasing over the years has managed to put us against each other as well as many of the other great um, divisions in this country across lines of race and gender and sexuality and immigration status and so on and so forth, right? But you don't beat, divide and conquer any other way except unite and fight, right? That's the only way that's ever done it. And so um, in other countries, as I threw in the chat, a bit about the Nordics where they introduced the solidarity wage principle to work to compress wages so that you don't have the intra-class divisions as significant. Um, and then that first thing is an article, I wrote a bit about the subject too, uh, why we should be thinking about sectoral organizing. That's just a theory and my own uh, uh, share the, what, what I've written kind of piece. How we're moving going forward, of course, is you don't just say, okay, we're gonna coordinate nationally and do it. There has to be that tight structure. There has to be that tight policy platform. And so we did that work. And then how are we going to put it into motion but by, as Joe was emphasizing, a sort of horizontal organizing strategy. So state by state by state. So just to take um, California, um, where we have most unionized workers in this country still, right? And still there are millions within that state. You have the American Federation of Teachers, you have United Auto Workers, you have National Education Association, you have Service Employees International Union, you have Teamsters, you have Communications Workers of America, with thousands upon thousands of workers, um, American, Federation of State County Municipal Employees asked me, um, and that we have to bring them all together and then work to move right, the legislators within that state. So thinking about terms of, forget about those occupational differences to the extent that we can as a tool of separation. It's not to say we never wanna deal with those problems, but for this narrow specific short time frame, think about how we're going to move together, how we're going to achieve unity through struggle. And then also that vertical organizing. So across those 13 national unions, how can we bring all the locals together where we're not a majority in any of them, not even close to a, a plurality in any of them, except for the American Association of University Professors, that higher ed is so split up, but nevertheless, if all the locals come together and say to the national union leadership, you need to prioritize us right now. We pay millions of dollars, right? We get you good press. We're loyal members, we're happy to wear the colors, but we need you to show up right now to work to end this crisis. And so that's where the true power comes. That's where the true strength comes from, is that mass unity to move the decision makers, that we don't have a ton of institutional power. Um, we, some of us have a lot of structural power, but a lot of us only have to rely on associational power. But association no power is enough when, when you build a, uh, enough people behind a unity of vision as we're working to do. And so in particular right now, states like Washington, New Hampshire, Virginia, um, and uh, uh, New York, right, are the really crucial senators that need to be moved um, just because of the makeup of the Senate and the committees where the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better Act is heading right now.
So if you have any friends, family members, or you yourself live in those states, please prioritize getting the word out there right now to the senatorial offices. And we have plenty of talking points to give to folks. Was that enough of an overview, Joe? Yeah, I mean, that's great. I think that's great. I mean, also, I mean, I think people should, you know, take down, uh, you know, maybe Trent, I don't know if you're comfortable putting your email in the chat box, but certainly people can reach Trent and others, uh, Nicola and others, who, I mean, pretty much everybody who you probably have heard from is, is involved on the email list, at least uh, higheredlaborunited at gmail.com will we'll get you uh, to the coalition, but also Trent just did add his his personal email, and I think there's more strategy discussion to be had. But I think one emphasis is also just the importance of putting attaching labor provisions to budgetary items, right? I mean, that's, that's maybe the obvious point that, that also needs to be underscored, right? Is that there is huge amounts of federal money that goes not just to public institutions, but to private institutions as well, right? Private institutions really aren't that private when you start to dig beneath the surface. I know um, a friend uh, of ours, uh, Jason Pramis here in Boston wrote a great article called UMass Cambridge, exploring, which you should find at Dig Boston, exploring all the money that Harvard gets from the state, and yet doesn't seem to have to live up to certain public standards of conduct with, with respect to how it treats its workers. So, I mean, I think it's just, there's some really interesting strategic thoughts in this Hulu coalition, and we're, I mean, we're just getting at them. Trent, did you want to add a brief, a brief point before we move on to Juliana and then Brett Benjamin? Yeah, go ahead, Brett. Go ahead, Trent. Trent, did, did you want to say, I thought I saw you wanted to say one more thing. He's doing the demuting process. Okay, fair enough. He may have, we may have, I don't, I'm not His sure words, what we're pulling this. It's, it's a perverse, perverse Zoom trap. Okay, uh, so uh, the host, I think, needs to unmute Trent. There we are, beautiful. They're beautiful. Yeah, I was just appreciate you bringing that up, Joe, that right, uh, the way that workers win is when uh, there's either an enormous disruption or credible threat of disruption of, of capital flow, right? And so in our case, the federal government is the one spigot that funds almost every university, whether through Pell Grants, Work Study, National Institutes of Health, National Science Foundation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the worst of the worst is loans with the enormous student loan crisis. But it's not that so many of our universities are poor, it's that they're broken, that the money is not going to where it should be going. And so, so the logic goes that if we assemble our strength in numbers and either disrupt or threaten to credibly disrupt, right, or credibly threaten to disrupt the capital focus from the government to the universities, that's where we can raise labor standards by attaching strings so that we don't have non-living wage paying jobs, we don't have job insecure jobs, that we don't have as much of a debt crisis, that if we publicly fund universities as they do in many other advanced capitalistic democracies and have a true labor floor as they do in other advanced capitalistic democracies, but we lack that's how we can work to strive toward better things. And in particular, we need to knock out the public sector collective bargaining across the South and in the, the Midwest and the Mountain West. So this Crucial is how Trent. we can do it. Thanks so much. And, and folks, again, who are on the live conversation can reach Trent by email and, and reach out to the coalition. Uh, Juliana, I wanted to um, give Juliana and Brett Benjamin a chance, and then we'll go back to the panel for comments and then take another round. Uh, Linda or I will take another round of, of questions for you all before we before we wrap this up for this evening. Uh, Juliana, are you, are you there? Can we unmute Juliana? Sometimes people there. I see you, Juliana. Can you unmute yourself? 
I am asking you to unmute. Juliana, there should be a little button where you can unmute yourself. You seeing it? There you go. All right, great. We have Juliana. Juliana Barnett, uh, what's your question or comment? Yes, hi. Uh, thank you. It's a really great initiative. Very good to hear. I am interested. I've, I've been a union organizer on campus in the University of Maryland with AFSME, Local 1072, and other or other work on, on university campuses, but with blue collar and pink collar workers, you know, secretarial and other kinds of staff, uh, and, uh, and with groundskeepers and the housekeepers. And I'm just wondering about the ways that people are, that HALU is directly working with them and also with the community, Karen, uh, who's also on, on this call, and I have also done, there's, there's been at times with kind of ups and downs, a, a community movement to, to working with uh, with workers, workers movement for justice on campus. Um, it's a very corporate oriented campus, uh, at, you know, University of Maryland. And so just a little bit about how HALU is encompassing those, uh, you know, those bodies of people. Terrific question, Juliana. Let's uh, let's take Brett Benjamin's comment question, and then we'll go back to our panel panel for some comments on on, on all these great great points. Brett? Hey, thank you. Uh, I'm I'm Brett Benjamin. I uh, I am a member of um, UUP United University Professions. This is the union that represents academics and professionals across SUNY um, State University of New York. Uh, I've been a past president of my own chapter and, and a bunch of other things, and I'm currently the um, chief negotiator on our contract uh, bargaining process with New York State. Uh, so I guess because I'm thinking in contract terms, I'm sort of neck deep in it right now. I, it struck me that one very concrete thing that Hilu might be able to do, and it goes along with the sort of um, list that Trent just sent around, is to, to really try to itemize some of the key provisions that are in um, existing collective bargaining agreements um, as a way of really highlighting places where gains could be made. I mean, I know in our last round of negotiations, we spent a ton of time going through other unions contracts to try to pull language that might be helpful for us. And I, I recognize that this is super tricky because we all negotiate in different frameworks. I, you know, our union is negotiated with New York State. Others are negotiating at a campus level. There's a whole series of differences um, that uh, pro privates and publics and all sorts of things. Um, but if we had a way, a kind of repository of uh, contract provisions, especially around contingent faculty, especially around um, what I what I heard some of the interesting uh, language about student debt. Sorry, I live in a downtown and we have police cars going by all the damn time. Um, uh, student debt, racial justice, like the the sort of thinking about incorporating some of the language around bargaining for the common good into higher ed um, union agreements. I would love to see a kind of repository of some of that. Um, work and be, be interested in, in participating as well as a way to help each um, local when they're in the process have access to the resources that might give them, you know, leverage in their own bargaining situation. Sorry to go on so long. That's terrific, Brett. Uh, 
really, really important stuff and a great, and I love that you're not, you're not just offering an idea, you're volunteering to help make it happen, which is the best kind of idea. All right, back to the panel. There's a lot. We have the blue pink collar worker question from Juliana, Brett's question and, and offer, uh, as well as uh, the, the earlier co comments from Trent. Uh, back to the panel, who would like to, who would like to speak? Just jump on in if you'd like. I could say something for a second about Great. building coalitions. Um, you know, when we're doing our work uh, in California with the with CFA, you know, a lot of our work also does rely on building relationships with our uh, worker federations or our other organizations, um, specifically in other industries. And so we do show up at the strike line when healthcare workers are on strike in our community. We do show up at the strike line when there are grievances in industries like even the cannabis industry in Northern California. You know, we are workers and helping people to understand those relationships really helps to embolden our work too. Because when we do like, so we're in contract negotiations right now with CFA. So we are right in the process of trying to figure out how we do bargain for a better contract, something that will put those pieces, Brett, that you're you know, identifying that you want to see in contracts and other spaces as well. We're right on those front lines. And we know that when we start asking for financial increases by our uh, for in regard to our contract, uh, it means that we go to the strike line or in the last situation, the day before the strike line was to be enacted. And so when we prepare for those kinds of things, we have to think about where our areas of support are. And we do so by building our consensus, you know, the, uh, achieving consensus mobilization within our institutions. But we also do so by getting our communities to recognize the needs that we have too. And I really think that that ultimately our work as laborers, I've had so many conversations where I've been in these kinds of, uh, you know, labor federation type meetings in this past year, trying to talk about what was specifically happening on my own campus, but seeing that that doesn't just stop on a campus issue. I mean, if we did something like what Nicole was suggesting and we're organizing a nationwide strike, we would be reaching out to our partners broadly as well. We have a pretty aggressive strategy in our organizing work right now, as Trent shared in the chat. We've been making moves and we've been doing that by starting with our unions and then moving to the organizations that we can, uh, that also are maybe not with a union contract, but are not recognized union by our laborers in higher education. But this is kind of how the process is building. It doesn't stop there. And so I am glad that you're highlighting other workers that are connected to this conversation that we will continue to work to mobilize as we build momentum for our actions and are not separate from our thinking as an organization. Thank you, Nicola. Kalina or Brian, would you like to address anything that's been put on the table by this last round before we- I just wanted, I just wanted to quickly uh, say to Brett that um, I think Trent put something in the chat, Brett, that looks really promising. In fact, I just wrote you an email reminder, um, Trent. Uh, about the uh, contract repository. Um, glad to contribute to that and also would love to access it. Um, and I'm sure many others would hear too, Brett. So make, make sure you note that, Brett, to, to get in touch with, with, with Trent over that. Terrific. That sounds like a great. And I'm happy to help out with it too, uh, Trent or Brett. 
Yeah, and I know our, our marketing team at UMass Boston would love to be reading it too, and can, as well as contribute. We have some good language, I think, that could benefit a lot of contingent faculty around the country, though there's plenty of work to be done. Uh, Kalina, do you want to, I know, not no obligation, but would you like would you like to take a stab at anything that's on the... No, no, I think I think we're in a good spot, and I and I agree um, that repository would be extremely helpful. <laughs> Terrific. All right, hat tip to to Brett Benjamin. Let's let's make it happen. All right, uh, Linda, I think you got the next batch of questions coming up. We're gonna take one more batch, and then we'll just ask uh, as we have crossed the eight thirty mark. We'll ask uh, our panel to address questions and also just make if you a, cl a closing remark perhaps I mean uh, maybe you know long-term vision uh inspiring thoughts to leave us with or you know guiding guiding words to to keep us grounded uh Linda what do we who do we have in the queue all right so in this uh next round we have first Ben Stork then John Morris and then Kira Moodliar so uh Ben what's your question Hi, uh, thank you all. Um, so I'm, I'm going to kind of belabor a point, and I realize this probably is not the right forum, given this is more about promoting uh, the HELU effort than it is really about discussing um, different strategies. But I, I am disturbed by the waving away of the structural effects of the two-tier system. Um, that is, it, it, it seemed as though structure was being invoked um, such that uh, it stops at the department door, um, as opposed to structuring from uh, throughout the entire system, right? It's a structure that runs throughout. And so for all the right calls for unity, it strikes me that in these discourses and not only in this space, but in most academic labor spaces, um, <clears throat> the people who are asked to unify are the people at the bottom. And that seems like a really weird um, labor organizing strategy to ask those at the bottom to continuously identify with those who hold power over them. Um, and that's uh, evident, for instance, in the, uh, in the holy grail-like status of tenure, right? Um, where we see uh, very clearly, I think from a, uh, any analytic position that tenure um, is vestigial. That is, uh, it, it, its role largely functions um, for management, not for labor. Um, and yet consistently what we're asked to do is to rally around to protect tenure. This is uh, clearly evident in, <clears throat> in the legislative uh, efforts, right? Um, the dictate of 75% tenure line teaching, right? Um, threatens employment for contingent faculty um, and in fact promises to worsen the conditions for tenure faculty. Um, so I guess the frustration I have um, with many of these moves, not only this, uh, putting aside that I think that legislative efforts are problematic in a certain fundamental way when it comes to labor politics, but um, but that, that we are continually asking those on the bottom to identify and fight for those who actually hold power over them. Um, I'm, not, I'm never clear why it isn't the other way around. Why isn't it that there's constant pressure on those with power to fight for those with less? Um, that strikes me as, as a sort of core principle of social justice and more specifically labor organizing. Um, so I know that that's kind of a, this is not the appropriate form for that, but um, that's sort of what was on my mind. So um, take it as a comment, feel free to respond. 
Okay, um, thank you, Ben. And I'm going to take the next two questions before we go to our guests. So uh, John Morris, what's your question? John Morris, do you have a question? John may have hopped off. Let's, I don't know if we can verify his presence right now. He, he asked, he posted earlier and he might not be with us. So maybe we should, not seeing John, we should not perhaps John? Move, okay. move, move to, move, move, move to All the right. next one. All right, so uh, we have a question from one of our co-producers, uh, Kira Moodliar. Kira? Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for letting me join the queue here. So. I have a question to all our speakers. So I know that the PRO Act, which is a piece of legislation that's meant to like introduce meaningful, enforceable uh, penalties for companies and executives who uh, violate workers' rights, that's supposed to expand workers' collective bargaining rights, as well as strengthen workers' access to fair union elections. We'll, we heard about the PRO Act like what, nearly six to eight months ago, especially when uh, the whole, union drive for um, Amazon ha was happening in Bessemer. And um, we know that it, it didn't pass in the last few months, but now it's in the reconciliation bill. Can I ask how will the PRO Act or how would the PRO Act affect your, the HELU's organizing? Can so you that um, last part, Kira, I'm sorry. I was writing a Sorry to ask, can you re repeat the question? No worries at all, yes. I'm just wondering how would the PRO Act, another part of like, well, pro-labor um, bit of legislation that's right now in the reconciliation bill, how would that affect Hughes organizing or promote it? Okay, so um, would any of you like to respond to any of the two questions that were just asked? Trent, you, do you want to jump in? Hey, uh, wonderful question, Kira. The, the PRO Act is a wonderful piece of legislation, but it only reforms the National Labor Relations Act, which has nothing about to do with public employment, which is the vast majority of, of you know, of our universities, right? I'm a, I mean, I'm at a private. Uh, I, I very much want the project to make my job a lot easier. But for our many colleagues at the publics, uh, you know, need to show up for them and that they've been uh, you know, by far the leaders of the effort. And so uh, it's sort of a, it's like a sandwich, right? It's in addition to rather than a substitute for. Um, and so in particular, we, we want to link, again, the federal funds to protecting the right to organize and bargain for the publics, particularly across the South and the West, as I mentioned earlier. In addition, a number of the PRO Act provisions uh, have been stripped down so that they're only about money because of how the, the Senate bizarre rule system is under reconciliation. So we're for it, just in addition to the work we're doing. I would be happy to jump in and answer Ben's question. I just wanted to be really clear also that uh, the call from Hulu for people to get involved is not targeted at lectures specifically. Um, it is something that's a call to all campus workers to get involved. And so we absolutely think that people in every position of higher education has 
have space as part of Hulu and are helping to sculpt and involve, you know, to craft our approach and our strategies on how to move forward. Just like we're a member run organization as a union, uh, I always encourage people to get involved if they want to see uh, language used in a particular way or, you know, uh, want to help to participate to make sure that, you know, there's clarity in the ways that we're approaching things. I mean, we're an organization that came organically out of the space of having conversations around issues that are really challenging and difficult. So I really want to emphasize that the call for people to organize is not directed at just one sector of people. Um, we encourage people to be as involved as possible. Some of the language that was specifically about the tenure uh, density is actually looking at increasing tenureship um, and instructional positions with eligibility for just cause protections equivalent to tenure. So we're trying to think about how we capture, you know, the experiences that people are having on a variety of different levels. Um, but I also want to emphasize that really the work that we're doing falls into line with, sorry, my email's always blown up if I have that tab open. Um, but one thing that I really want to emphasize for us is this notion that speaks to what my colleague Trent was presenting as well, that when we are together, we bargain. When we're divided, we beg. And if we focus on just one particular way of, you know, if we, if we are we're not all going to agree <laughs> and we're not going to agree on our strategy and our approaches but the beauty of what Hulu is uh that in my mind is that it is incorporating so many different viewpoints around issues that are so emotional because they speak to our very lived conditions but we're trying to find a way forward together and harnessing the collective power that we have bolstering our individual experiences in a way that ultimately if we're able to do what we are setting out to do, we'll transform education. And so we invite people to join us in this mission as daunting and as huge as it is. And if I, I'll, I'll jump in also because, um, you know, that the, the comment about tenure, I just wanna say that it sort of struck me as, as the reverse and and we should do everything we can to make sure that that communication is clear. Um, so, you know, I, I see the, the call as not a protection of tenure, but as an expansion of tenure, so that it is more available, as you say, Nicola, um, it's an expansion of tenure so that it's more available to those who did not have um, access to it before so that we don't have people who are working for decades without uh, an appropriate sort of commitment from the institution to which they have sort of dedicated their lives, right? Um, and it's also, you know, maybe tenure um, is, is, is not the point. The point is a permanent, secure, fairly paid position. Um, so there are ways I'm sure that tenure has been abused and, and been, uh, played against us in the past. Um, and I, that is understood. But it is if you understand the, the balance between those who do have secure employment and those who do not currently, um, uh, us, you know, encouraging tenure is encouraging the increased availability of full-time secure work. Yeah, I, I would just add, I mean, Kalina said that, that really well, and, and um, I won't make make that same point, but I don't think it's true 
that the, um, the platform will make conditions worse for the precarious workers who um, don't achieve, whether it's teaching tenure or the job protection that, that we, we spoke about in terms of the short-term goals. Uh, in fact, uh, I know I wouldn't personally and my union wouldn't be in support of, of any provision that left those behind in the same situation or in a worse situation. It explicitly actually calls for um, pay parity with those who uh, achieve the job security, you know, for those who are currently contingent and either don't wish for uh, full-time work or don't wish for the, um, you know, the entry to the new position. So, I mean, I didn't want, I wanted to say that and just, you know, on the, to, you know, on a, on a personal, somewhat embarrassing note, I was thinking about that, that provocation of Ben's in the context of the introduction that Joe gave to me that, oh, you know, Brian's been an adjunct for 30 years and he's taught it. Uh, you know, 350 classes uh, across a dozen disciplines. And yeah, it's all true. And it's won me exactly zero in the way of job security, zero. Because what I do isn't valued. And I see the Higher Ed Labor United platform as a way of attaching value to academic functions that go beyond research and go beyond the things which tenure is currently associated with. There's no reason why those who are doing service and are doing teaching ought not have the same protections. And so yeah, I don't care what the word is really myself. And I think Ben's actually got an interesting point about, you know, or which I think is incipient his point about the anxieties that, um, you know, tenured faculty may have about its, its attrition. I get it. Um, but to me, it's about the point that Kalina made that it ought to be the case that workers have some security. It's certainly not right that adjuncts or others who work for 30 years and work well and you know, teach more in their um, careers than any five you know, currently tenured faculty are ever going to teach and yet have only the good graces of their tenured department heads as you know, a basis for feeling secure. It's not right. And so we probably agree about that. How we get there, we absolutely have to keep talking about. Thank you all so much. I think really, really powerful responses. Uh, you know, Ben Stork uh, has, has been a voice on our show before and I hope again, uh, we need to continue this conversation. And I, and I would I would actually say that this show tonight though very much pro Hilu has also been a conversation that's very much foregrounded the voices and the struggles of contingent and adjunct faculty members as well. Uh, even as our coalition is very much, as I think has been indicated in the chat box, composed of tenured tenure track and non-tenure track and non-tenure track or tenure barred faculty, uh, tenure excluded faculty, as well as staff, graduate students. Uh, these are crucial issues, and uh, this conversation is going to be ongoing. This is not a this is not an issue that's going away. Um, we have just a few minutes to wrap up, I think, um, folks, and so I wanted to ask each of our panelists for a closing remark or two. Um, one way to do this would be, what's the, you know, the big picture, what's the higher ed system or the higher learning that you would like to see in the world? You know, what is the, the, the what is the, the positive goal for which you're struggling, but, but really I'm not gonna force you into that box either. If there's any closing words of wisdom or insight or danger or hope that you'd like to leave our audience with as we uh, crawl towards uh, a two hour mark here tonight. We'd love to hear that. And Nicole Braun, I'd love to include you in that as well. 
before uh, Linda and I wrap up the show. Um, guess, Nicola, Brian, Colino. I'll just say in 15 seconds, something Nicola mentioned not long ago, I'll mangle it, right? But the important part was that um, when we're disunited over a loan, we beg. When we're together, we at least have a chance. And um, I want our adjunct union at Rutgers to be not just advancing our lot, but advancing the lot of staff workers and others who um, face real dangers uh, in this time of pandemic and thereafter. And so um, we've got to figure out all the points of connection that are available to us and, um, and firm them up. So I really appreciate being uh, asked to, to, to come tonight, Joe. I'd love to come back anytime to talk about related issues. Awesome. We'd love to have you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Kalina or Nicola? In the same vein, I mean, I think I think that's the core point, right? There's so many things in the world that could be so easily solved if we could unite, focus, and act together. Um, and you know, Hulu is is creating this this wonderful vehicle for us to do that in in this case. Um, and it's such a clear uh, cause, right? Um, it's such a, a clearly valuable cause, and you know. It's, it's an opportunity to refine that skill and then face the next thing. So looking for it. Powerful. Nicola, and then I guess Nicole will get the last guest word. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure being here with everyone. I've really valued this conversation as I always do when we come and talk about something that's so close to my heart. Um, but I just wanted to sort of offer one thing that I was able to say during our, our meeting earlier this week with Senator Padilla's office here in California. Uh, what we're looking at right now is that we don't have a good system. It's not a good system, but it's a system filled with good people and that's why it works. And I really feel like what we have presented with Hulu right now, the resources that have been developed are a way for you, regardless of where you are, to take that conversation and apply it in your respective spaces. There are resources for how to start the conversation, to talk about some of these difficult questions that may be building on your campus, undoubtedly are a part of your campus community. You know, there are resources for the pledge, you know, how to get involved, how to help us with the work that we're doing. There's ways to get involved with the committees that we were speaking about earlier. There are ways for us to work on this together and it's going to take all of us. So please check out the website, higheredlaborunited.org. Know that this is a place where we are constantly compiling avenues for people to take this and apply it and build on it and really start to create the kind of change that we want to see. So thank you so much for having me today. I just am so grateful to be here with my colleagues from Higher Ed Labor United. This has just been a pleasure to be a part of. And, uh, you know, with all the work that we have going on, you know, this is giving us hope. So I really would, you know, emphasize that this is something that is a space for everyone to be a part of and to join us in this movement. Thank you, Nicola, and a lot of us doing it on top of four or five or six courses we're teaching, perhaps at the same time, right? Um, not getting service credit for this yet either, but uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what we can do about that when we redefine tenure. All right, Nicole Braun, respondents, last word before Linda helps wrap it up. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, the idea of hope that Nicola just brought up is super important. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I feel excited about the Labor Summit in the beginning. I mean, I sort of, you know, logged on to it. I signed up and logged on to it just to see what's going on. You know, these are issues I care about. But I left, like, feeling so inspired. And I, you know, as an adjunct, you know, I do feel rage. And I feel like, you know, I've spent all these years and, uh, you know, you can you know the, the drill. And I'm glad Ben asked the questions that he did, because I think those are conversations that we should have more and that we should have more often and I know everyone's exhausted and so I really appreciate the time that everybody has you know um, taken to like create like this vision to create to have the conversations to talk about the hard issues and to continue talking about the hard issues because some of it is really painful but but you know what I really was drawn to about healing was that it was really process oriented that you know even though it's very focused and then um, I just felt like really inspired the fact that people were talking about contingent labor and talking about the greater good, talking about like not reproducing race, class, gender, sexuality, like inequalities in the movement. I mean, all those things I think, you know, speak to me um, as somebody who really cares deeply about social justice. And, you know, as a sociologist and just as a human being, I care greatly about not only higher education, but just the state of um, the country and the world. And so, you know, I love talking about, for example, eradicating student loan debt because it's such a prison for so many people and it has been for years. So I mean, I just look forward to having more conversations and I hope everybody also gets some rest and some downtime because I know every educator that I've talked to is exhausted. So that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole, and to all our guests really uh, moving and uh, words of wisdom there. We do need, this is a marathon, not a sprint. shall run there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one but the union makes us strong